Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. Enjoy the message. Considering it, that each one of those couplets has first an instruction or a commandment, and then it is followed by a promise if you keep that commandment. So if you look at verse 1, it says, My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. And then it says in verse 2, For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. So you have the instruction followed by the promise. And it goes that way all the way through those first 10 verses. I thought it was an interesting study that the Lord, not the one I prepared, the one that the Lord wrote uh, in the book of Proverbs. Now, you'll notice verse 11 follows that same pattern, which is where we are today. And so verse 11 and 12 says, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. So again, you have the instruction in the first of the two verses. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. And then the promise is because the Lord reproves the one that he loves as a father, the son, in whom he delights. That is, that he does it for your good. One of the means, we're talking about the Lord imparting wisdom to his children. One of the means in which the Lord uses to impart wisdom to those that want to walk in the way of wisdom is through discipline. Or as some versions say, it is through chastening. How many of you are excited to hear that? That sounds fantastic. I just want the Lord to discipline me. But Solomon instructs his son, notice what he says there in verse 11, two things, do not despise the Lord's discipline, and then he says, and do not become weary of the Lord's reproof. And the reason why we shouldn't despise the Lord's discipline or become weary of the Lord's reproof is found in verse 12, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves, as a father, the son in whom he delights. Now, I think it's significant to to draw our attention to the word discipline there. Look at the root of the word discipline. The root of the word discipline is the word disciple. And we know that a disciple, it's a term we're familiar with studying the New Testament, Jesus and his disciples. The word disciple is a word which means simply learner. And so then at the core of this idea of a discipler is there has to be a teacher. If you're going to have a learner, the disciple, you have to have a teacher which is the discipler. And when God disciplines us, and the one that he loves, he does so ultimately for the purpose of teaching. You know, sometimes as parents, we discipline our kids because we're mad at our kids. We're angry at our kids. We want to punish our kids. But ultimately, the whole process of discipline should be for the purpose of teaching. Now, there may be some punishment involved in that because we have found with our kids in particular, maybe that punishment process really gets their attention. And so we take their phone and we discipline in that regard. So now go sit in silence like I did when I was a kid. All right, that's what you're going to have to go do and so on. But the whole purpose, God disciplines ultimately for the purpose of teaching. And like a good teacher, you think of those good teachers that you had when you were a student. Some of you many, many years ago, Al. All right, and you you think about that many, many years ago when you had a good teacher. A good teacher has a plan. They, They come into the class, they have a plan, they have an objective. This is how I plan to meet that particular objective. But if that initial go at it doesn't work, then they come at it another way. And they come at it another way and another way. And so good teachers, they have a whole bunch of tools in their teaching toolbox, so to speak. And so that tool, as far as the Lord might be concerned, it could be just straightforward instruction. Look, this is what you need to know. 
learn the point that I want to make with you. It might take the form of a strong warning. Parents do that. Look, you go down this path, and this is what's going to happen to you. It might be gentle encouragement coming alongside. It might be in the form of fatherly advice. They're all different tools. And one of the tools in the Lord's toolbox is discipline. It's chastening. Now, the writer of the book of Hebrews, he references these verses. And so in Hebrews chapter 12, he basically says the same thing again that Solomon says here, but then he goes a little bit further and he explains it. And as we've said many times, sometimes the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. And so another place in the scripture where it goes a little bit deeper on something that it perhaps just presents on a surface level. level. And so we have that in Hebrews 12. So if you want to turn over there, you can. We'll put them up on the screen. But in Hebrews chapter 12, it begins this way, the section I want to look at. It says, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved of him, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves. He chastises every son whom he receives. That's Proverbs 3 being quoted there in Hebrews 12. Now, here's the reason the writer to Hebrews explains. He says, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Illegitimate in the sense of you're not really being raised by your dad as you should be being raised by your dad or by your mother. Verse 9, besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for that. Maybe not when we were young, but when we got a little bit older, we're like, you know what, I'm glad my dad did that. It continues, shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they, our parents, disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, the Lord, disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by that discipline. Verse 12, therefore, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, Make straight your paths, paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be out of joint, but rather be healed. So notice a few things in this particular passage. I already pointed out, the first thing is, Solomon essentially says this, excuse me, the writer of Hebrews says almost the same exact thing as Solomon, word for word. He quotes him, not to regard the Lord's discipline lightly, not to become weary as a result of that discipline. And then he adds, as Solomon did, because the Lord disciplines the one that he loves. As it says in verse 6, the Lord disciplines the one he loves, chastises every son that is his, every son that he receives. So the exhortation in both is not to grow weary when you're disciplined, but notice, to actually rejoice when you are being disciplined. Really? That's what you think? I don't always feel that way. All right, I know that in my head, but I don't necessarily always feel that way when it's happening to me. But he says actually to rejoice when you are being disciplined, because the, fair, the very fact that the Lord is disciplining you should be an encouragement to you, not a discouragement to you. Because what it proves is it's a sign that the Lord loves you as one of his children. So both Solomon and the writer of Hebrews, they tell us that, that you're his child when he disciplines you. And they also add a little more explanation. Look at verse 7 continues. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? 
if you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you're illegitimate children and not his sons. What should cause you is if you're not being disciplined by the Lord. That should cause you concern. If you can just sort of get away with anything, if you're constantly getting away with sin, according to these verses, you have to seriously question whether or not you are really the Lord's son or daughter. Again, look at the Hebrews passage, verse 9. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them, for they disciplined us for a short time as seemed fit to them. Now, sometimes a mom or dad, I know I did this many times, sometimes a mom or dad will discipline their children for no other reason than that they want quiet in the house. And so I'm disciplining you right now because you have disturbed my peace. Not for your good, for my good. I want quiet. And so sometimes as parents, we do that for our own benefit. But the norm, hopefully, the norm is that a mom or a dad will discipline their children for the benefit of their children, knowing that if they let their kid just get away with anything and they continue to let them get away with anything for the rest of their lives, that's not going to be good for the kid in the long run. And they're going to grow up to be an adult that thinks they can get away with anything and thus will do anything. Let me give you an example of this. When my kids were little, I hated when school started again. I liked it when they weren't in the home, you know, and they're out during the day and I have some free time and it's quiet in the house. I could do my work. At that time, I used to have an office at home and things like that. But once school started, meant homework started. And it meant every night after dinner, my wife or I had to sit with our kids and make sure they did all of the work that they had to do and so on. And that's a really fun experience, isn't it, parents? Yeah, that's a real great thing. But as good parents, hopefully, we make sure they sit down. We make sure they do their work. We help them with that. We keep the TV off so we're not watching the news and thus distracting them and all these sorts of things. And we're sitting alongside of them because as parents, we know the impact that that will have on their overall school performance and then the options that they have later in life. And certainly it's a hassle for us as parents, but we do it for the good of our children. Now, let me tell you what I did not do, though. I know how important homework is for my children, kids in general. What I did not do was go wandering down the neighborhood and find other people's kids and help them do their homework because they ain't my kids. That's somebody else's problem. I got my own problems I got to deal with and sitting down and make sure my kids do what they need to do. I discipline my kids because I love my kids and I want what's best for my kids. And I love your kids too, but I ain't coming over and helping. All righty. They can do that on their own. So if in your life you can live your life in all sorts of rebellion and the Lord never brings a tinge of conviction or he never allows you to get caught, I was talking to a friend recently, and I mentioned to him, we used to pray that my kids would get caught in the things that they do. Well, that's so mean. I can't believe you would do that. No, because when they're little, they're doing minor things. I want them to get caught when it's the lesser issues so that they don't grow this idea of I can get away with sin and there are no consequences. And so we would pray for my son Luke, for instance, and he's a good boy and would never do anything wrong. All right, but we would pray that they would get caught in that process. If we are God's kids, God should be doing a disciplined work in our lives. And again, it starts off with a conviction, and then it moves to some, a little further, and then it moves to something a little further. And then finally, if need be, if we're not learning the lesson, he goes back into the toolbox, and he pulls out the so-called rod of discipline. And that's painful, but again, it's for the purpose of teaching us that if we're going to continue to rebel and go our own way, 
See, a good teacher, the Lord's not going to abandon his lesson objective. By the end of this class period, these kids are going to learn this particular lesson. And if it doesn't work this way, I'll try that way, and I'll try this way, and I'll try this way. And that's what the Lord does in each of our lives as well. But either way, in the end, he's going to see to it that his children learn his lesson. Now, notice what it says in Hebrews 12. He disciplines us for our good. Notice it continues, that we may share in his holiness. God's ultimate purpose in the disciplines that he brings into our life is that we might become partakers of his holiness. And that sounds pretty, you know, high up there. It just simply means that we might become more like him. And so he disciplines us so that we could become more like him. So if you're being corrected, rather than saying, God, get off my back, the more proper response should be, Lord, thank you. Because this proves that you love me. This proves that I'm your child. Now, let me add one more point about this idea of chastening or discipline. Sometimes God disciplines us because we've gotten off track. We've rebelled. We need to repent. And he needs to make us aware of that. Other times, though, the Lord chastens us to keep us from the way of rebellion. And the idea would be, remember we talked about how God directs our path? Sometimes he brings a chastening in our lives at this stage to keep us from getting to that stage down there. And, you know, quite honestly, we, we don't necessarily, sometimes we see his hand. Oh, thank God. Usually after the fact, we look back. Lord, I'm so glad you allowed this to happen here so I didn't get to that over there. And so sometimes we see his hand at work. But I, I think we're going to get to heaven. Those of us that are believers, we'll get to heaven. And we're going to say, Lord, you did so much in my life that I was completely unaware of. Notice what it says there in Hebrews 12:11. Later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. God uses his disciplining work in our lives to create within us a righteousness, a holiness, a set-apartness unto him. So knowing that, Solomon here, the writer of Hebrews, and the writer of Hebrews, they both say, do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not grow weary of the Lord's reproof. Both of those terms imply a rejection of the discipline. More specifically, a rejecting of it with loathing, as it's been interpreted. And so he says, do not despise the Lord's discipline. Do not be weary of his reproof. The idea is do not reject it as if you're loathing it. I don't want that thing in here. You know, I'm not a fan of like lizards and frogs and bugs or anything. I like dogs and cats. All right? I, don't like, I used to work on a farm and the chickens would get out. And they'd say, Greg, go out and get the chickens and put them back in a coop. Yeah, that's beyond what I do. Or whatever. You know, I'm sorry. I can't do it. Like, I'll, I'll shoo them back in with my foot or a broom or something. But the, the kids who grew up on the farm, my, my cousins, they grew up on the farm. They, they're like four, and they go pick them up and drop them in. I'm not touching that. It just, it, it just freaks me out or whatever. But I'll pick up a dog uh, or a kitty cat or something. That's it. And so I loathe, I reject the idea of frogs and lizards and, and all those things, snakes and so on. I loathe it. I reject it. He says here, do not despise it. Do not loathe the Lord's discipline. The Lord's discipline is good for you. William Arnaud says this, do not refuse to make it the occasion of communion with God. As if saying, I hate this so much, this is not good for me, I want nothing to do with it. Arnaud is saying, there, no, no, this is an opportunity for you to commune with God and let him teach you. He set up a private tutoring section, session with you. He wants to meet with you and grow you that you might be more like his son. 
And so this pain and this grief with being disciplined, remind yourself they're being sent for the very purpose of inviting you into God's presence, that he might teach you and grow you in his way. It's God's way of pulling you aside and pulling you into the deepest places of his heart. And Solomon says, don't despise those times apart with the Lord. Those times are meant to grow you. Now that phrase, do not grow weary, it's this idea of collapsing under the pressure. I just can't take it anymore. I give up. One commentator wrote, don't let it cause you to sink into despondency and despair. So to put it on our own words, what Solomon is saying is, don't let it discourage you that you're being disciplined to the point where you collapse. Solomon says, no, take heart. God is working the fruit of righteousness in you through this time of discipline. And yeah, it doesn't feel great at the time, but ultimately it is for your good. So the exhortation again here is don't lose sight of the discipline's purpose. God wants to bring good from this challenge in your life. And notice there, and I think it's important, if you allow him to. If you allow him to. Otherwise, all right, tomorrow we're going to teach the same lesson again. And the next day, the same lesson again. I'm committed for you to learn this lesson, is what the Lord says. Amen? All right, so that's those verses. Now, verse 13, in that verse, we begin a new section of the chapter. And this is going to be a section through the end of the chapter in which Solomon is going to remind his son once again of the value of his son getting wisdom. So if you were with us in our early studies of the book of Proverbs, you know that the book begins by Solomon painting this picture of just how awesome wisdom is, how valuable wisdom is, how wisdom should be the chief goal of any man or woman that has ever lived on the earth. And he paints his picture. Well, here now he's going to come back and essentially do that again. And, I, and you're like, okay, well, he just did that. Why do it again? What I'm wondering is this. I don't know if you were like me, but after that first week of studying through Proverbs 1, verses 1 through 7, and seeing this picture painted of how good and valuable wisdom is, I left here that day thinking, this book is going to be awesome. Wisdom is often. I actually said to myself, I think I'm going to memorize every verse of the book because it is just so valuable. I was jazzed up about this material. And then you know what happened over the next four weeks? It's like, yeah, it's a good book. It's a good book. I like it. You know, but sort of the passion, the excitement, the enthusiasm for the wisdom faded away. And so I'm wondering if Solomon is anticipating that's going to happen to his son. And so he doubles back and he says, you know what? Let me just tell you once more just how good and how valuable and what a blessing wisdom actually can. Perhaps that's why he's doing it. So he exhorts his son again, starting in verse 13 of the value of wisdom. He says, Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding, for the gain from her is better than gain from silver, and her profit is better than gold. Now Solomon uses the word blessed there, or blessed. Do you see that there? Early on in the verse, first word of the verse in my version. Reminds me of what Jesus did in the Sermon on the Mount. You know the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes in particular, where Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst, and so on. And he went through all of these blesseds, or blessings, if you will. That word in the Hebrew, and even in the Greek, it's a word which means happy. And I think it's an interesting word to put in there. Happy is the one who finds wisdom. Seems a little peculiar. We think of the religious term of blessed, but the term there could be the word happy. As a matter of fact, the King James translates it that way. And Solomon is declaring that the happy individual is the individual that has found and built their life 
upon God's wisdom. And I think it's interesting that he chooses to contrast it with something that our society and our culture has convinced us is the way to find happiness. He chooses to contrast it with vast amounts of silver and gold. So again, he says, blessed is the one who finds wisdom and gets understanding, for the gain from her is better than the gain from silver, and the profit is better than gold. And again, I find it interesting because our society tells us that the true path, the path to true joy and the path to true happiness is wealth. If you have plenty of wealth, then you can get whatever you want. You can sit on the beach and you can have the beach house, you can have the boat and you can go to the mountains, you can take trips to Europe, whatever you want to do, and boy, you'll be delighted and you'll be happy. We hear all the time, if I could only be super rich, then all my problems would go away and life would truly be happy. Not according to Solomon. And frankly, Solomon is somebody that should know. Of course, we know Solomon was the wisest man that ever lived. The scripture tells us that. We also know that this is the word of God and that the word of God is true. And so the scripture tells us that as well. But from just a very practical standpoint, Solomon was a man of enormous wealth. It says, interesting, in 1 Kings 10.21, it says that all King Solomon's drinking vessels were made of gold, and the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were of pure gold. None were of silver. Silver was not considered anything in the days of Solomon. It tells us that he had so much gold that even valuable silver was considered worthless. Just silver because he had so much gold. He was a man of enormous wealth. He was a man acquainted with vast amounts of wealth, and yet he declared that wisdom, or the wealth, I should say, paled in comparison to God's wisdom and to finding it and getting understanding. Now look, gold and silver are fine in this life. It's okay to have things that money can buy, certainly so, as long as you do not lose the things that money cannot buy. And oftentimes that's what happens because we begin to chase money and we abandon our family. Or we begin to chase money and we abandon our principles and our morals or what have you. And so happiness, pleasantness, peace. So, many we, so often we hear that they're the byproducts of financial success. And the reality is, as many could probably testify here, is that happiness, pleasantness, and peace aren't the guaranteed byproducts of financial success. And sadly, too many people run after it. And sadly, too many Christians run after it, only to be discouraged when they get to the end of things. What Solomon is saying here is, here's your guarantee. Not that financial peace is going to bring you those things, but that the Lord's wisdom invested in your life will bring you those particular things. The benefit of knowing wisdom, ultimately of knowing Jesus Christ, far surpasses any profit that we might get from silver and gold. And so... Solomon says there, find wisdom, get understanding. That word get before understanding is do whatever it takes to get it. Reminds me of my Easter egg hunts when I was a kid. When we got a little bit older, we had full contact Easter egg hunts in the Downs family. I have three brothers, or two brothers, I'm the third brother. And then we had some cousins who got married and their, their husbands or whatever got into it as well. And we, don't tell anybody, all right? But we used to play every Every Easter egg had a name on it, so it would have Greg, Scott, Jeff, everyone's name. And if somebody found your egg, you had to give them a dollar or whatever at the end of this thing. So it was quite fun, actually. And I'm telling you, it was full contact, and it was great, and I loved it. And I was determined I was going to win this thing and at least find two eggs so that I didn't go home a loser uh, of cash 
or whatever. But we were determined. Whatever it took to get the Easter eggs in this particular instance here. That's what Solomon says you should pursue wisdom like. Whatever it takes to get it, get it, he says. Now let's continue. Verse 15, she's more precious than jewels. We're talking about wisdom, personified as a woman. And nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand. In her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways, it says in verse 17, are ways of pleasantness. And all of her paths are paths of peace. She is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her, and those who hold her fast are called blessed. As it says in verse 15, not just gold and silver is she more uh, valuable than, but also more precious than jewels. Nothing, it says, there can compare with her. They're They're to be desired. Wisdom is to be desired more than any earthly prize. Notice verse 16, long life is found in wisdom. Also in verse 16, riches and honor are found in wisdom. Verse 17, all of her ways of pleasant, are pleasantness. All of her paths are paths of peace. A life built on God's wisdom is, I agree with Alexander McLaren, he said, it's a life marked with inward delight and deep tranquility. A life that is built on God's wisdom is a life marked with inward delight and deep tranquility. Now, of course, we've said this before. That's not to say that a person that is trying to follow the Lord and walk in the ways of the Lord is not going to have difficulties on this side of heaven. But what it, might, what it makes clear is that the only complete peace which fills and quiets the whole man comes when we're walking in God's wisdom. Because that's what you were created to be and to do. That's when you discover peace with God, as I've said, peace with other people. And ultimately, that's when you discover even a peace inside of yourself that cannot be known in any other way. And so Solomon adds then in verse 18, he says, Wisdom is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those Those who hold fast are called blessed. So if you had an apple tree, what fruit would it produce? Apples. You guys are on the ball. All right. If you have a tree of life, the fruit that it produces is life. He says she is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. The only way, and hear this, and, and, I'm, and I've, I'm carefully thinking through these words. So I'm not just randomly making some statement. The only way to truly live as you were created to live is by walking in obedience to God and his commands. And if you're living that way, the byproduct of that, the promise of that, is abundant life. Jesus in John chapter 10 speaks of abundant life, and he says in John 10, 10, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, what the Scripture teaches is that the Holy Spirit has been imparted in your life as a down payment of heaven. And if the Holy Spirit is in your life, that means the Holy Spirit is crying out for, yearning for this sort of life. That's the sweet spot for the believer to be walking in God and his ways. That's what you were created and recreated to do, is walk with God according to his ways. That's the abundant life that Jesus speaks of. And so then, regardless of all of the outside circumstances that are going around you, as you're walking in his ways in that way, that's when you're truly blessed. Or, again, to use the alternative translation, that's when you're happy. That's when you're satisfied. That's where you find yourself walking as God would have you to walk. 
Now, in that verse, he makes reference to the tree of life. And you may be familiar, that may sound familiar to you. You know that in the garden, when Adam and Eve were created, that amongst all the trees that were there in the garden, there were two in particular. There was the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and there was the tree of life. And I think Solomon here is making a reference to the tree of life because the tree of life, consume that, you would live forever. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, as it says there in the passage, would bring death. And what did they choose? They chose the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Despite the instructions not to, our great-great-great-grandparents, Adam and Eve, rebelled against God's instruction, rebelled against God's will, his wisdom, if you will. And they took of the forbidden fruit, resulting in the promised death. So because of their unwillingness to heed God's command, because of their refusal to walk in God's wisdom, and because of their foolish decision to ignore God's instructions and proceed in their own wisdom, the byproduct of that, the fruit of that, was death and separation from God. Solomon's plea to his son is, son, don't be like your great-great-grandparents. Don't choose death over life. Choose the way of wisdom. Choose to fear the Lord. Choose to, tr- to truly live and not die. And so he, he calls their attention to the tree of life. He says, don't do what Adam and Eve did. Now, there's a lot more. Verse 19, he says, the Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the deeps broke open and the clouds dropped down the dew. Solomon points now to the wisdom of God in the creation of the world. You notice it there? Verse 19, he says, By wisdom the Lord founded the earth. Also in 19, by understanding, he established the heavens. In 20, he says, By his knowledge, the deeps broke open and the clouds dropped down their dew. And then finally in verse 20, he says, and by, uh, I just quoted that, by his knowledge the deeps broke open and the clouds dropped down their dew. So he says, in his wisdom and with a word, the Lord created our universe, the perfect system to allow our world and our universe to both come into being and to continue to operate. With a word. You know, I think when we create things here on the earth, like computer type stuff, there's these tests, beta tests and stuff, and then you figure out, okay, we did this wrong, we did this wrong, we did this wrong, we've got to go back and fix all of those things. We have trial runs, we tweak things, we have soft openings for the new stores that are opening in our society so we can get rid of all of the problems here. The Lord doesn't need any of that. With a word, he creates a world which can maintain life and sustain life and go on and go on and go on. In his wisdom and by his knowledge and understanding, he puts everything perfectly into place in this world. He creates that. And what Solomon is saying this, now catch this, he's saying that same God that did all of that in the creation of the world makes his wisdom available to you and I. Come on. How remarkable that is, that he would make his wisdom available to me If I would choose to walk in his ways, the God of all wisdom, willing to share that perfect wisdom with you and I, it is honestly, it's almost inconceivable for us to take in that he would do that. How privileged we are to be instructed on wisdom by the one who in his wisdom both created and sustained the universe. A number of years back, probably around 2005, when I was still school teaching, 
I had the privilege to attend a conference at George Washington's Mount Vernon. Anybody been to George Washington? It's a pretty remarkable place. I love it there. One person went to George Washington's Mount? Okay. Three of you. Thank you for not raising your hand earlier. All right. It's a really great place. This particular conference, so I would say thousands of people go there every day, probably tens of thousands, uh, particularly in the summertime. But this particular conference was a conference for 50 of us, uh, 50 of the nation's high school U.S. history teachers. And I was fortunately selected to be one of them. And it was specifically for those of us that teach history and teach the U.S. Constitution as a part of the history that we teach, which I did. And as I said, I was fortunate to be chosen. It was a week-long conference. During that time, we were exposed to some of the nation's top constitutional scholars and constitutional historians. And the whole purpose of it was for us as teachers to dig into the origins of the U.S. Constitution and particularly the contemporary interpretation of the late 18th century founders. Sounds pretty cool, doesn't it? <laughs> They're like, you're a geek, man. Yeah, I was. But that's exactly, I loved it. I was so excited about the opportunity, and I enjoyed it very much. Now, here's the reason I bring this story up, because something occurred on the second to last day of the conference when an unexpected visitor showed up at Mount Vernon. Now, he had come to Mount Vernon simply to lay a reef at George Washington's tomb. But he was there, and it was Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. I don't know if you've ever had a chance to sit down with a Supreme Court judge, uh, but it was pretty exciting for us to do so. And he comes there just simply to, to lay this wreath, not knowing that our group was there. But then somebody told him, hey, there's a bunch of school teachers here that are learning about cons the Constitution and the origins of the U.S. Constitution and the contemporary understanding of the U.S. Constitution. And so he said, well, would you mind if I stay and sit in with the teachers? Well, we had an opportunity to hear from a man who sits every day and interprets the U.S. Constitution. And so he says, do you mind if I sit in on the conversation? And the, the scholar that was leading it, the professor that was leading it, very wisely realized, I have an opportunity, or these teachers, I should say, have an opportunity to hear about constitutional law and the interpretation and understanding of constitutional law from a guy that is currently sitting on the U.S. Supreme Court. And that teacher wisely put himself aside. Now, I bring that point up because God in his wisdom says, look, I created all wisdom. I work with it every day. I understand how it works. If you would like, I could sit in and speak into your life if you would like to. And we could either have another person, man's wisdom, speak into our life, or we could have God himself speak into our life. Solomon's appeal is allow the creator God to speak into your life because he knows what he is doing as evidenced by, in a word, he can create the entire world. He knows what he's doing. He continues, he says, my son, do not lose sight of these things. Keep sound wisdom. Keep discretion, and they will be life for your soul, adornment for your neck. Then you will walk on your way securely, and your foot will not stumble. If you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. He says, do not lose sight of these things. I'm telling you a lot of stories today. I'll tell you another story. When I was young, I worked as a lifeguard, and I was trained both to be a swimming pool lifeguard, which is relatively simple, um, and a waterfront lifeguard, which is for lakes and oceans and things like that. That's a little more challenging, particularly on the East Coast where our oceans are dark uh, and all of that. If somebody goes under, you lose them. Now, water ref rescues, waterfront rescues are a bit different from swimming pool rescues for a variety of different reasons. One, you have dark versus clear water. Typically, the distance is a lot further to go out into the ocean or a lake or something than it would be 
10 feet or so into the center of the swimming pool. The water conditions, usually it's still water in a pool, but you've got waves and things like that out in the ocean. And so because of that, one of the main points that our instructors continued to stress to us was to never lose sight of the victim when attempting to make a rescue. The point being, continually keep a visual on the distressed swimmer as you're making your way out to them. And you know, those of you that swim, that can be quite challenging as you're trying to cover a great deal of distance because you just want to put your head down and you want to get out there. But instead, they tell you to swim with your head up, which kind of slows you down considerably. But you keep your eye continually on the distressed swimmer. What Solomon is saying to his son is live life with your head up. Live life with your eyes continually on that prize. He says, do not lose sight of these things. Live life with your head up, way up, all the way to heaven. Keep your eye on the target. Let wisdom and understanding ever remain in your sight. Look, we have all the wisdom in the world that we need right here. But this, I'll be honest with you, this is useless if you never pay attention to it. There was a point in time in America where every home in America likely had a Bible in it. I suspect in many of your circumstances, many of the rooms in your home likely have a Bible in it. An old Bible or one here or one when you're sitting in that room that you might be able to look at. And that's wonderful. But if you never opened those Bibles or looked into those Bibles for the wisdom that they offer you, their proximity is meaningless to you. So just knowing that God is the source of all wisdom and that he looks to share that wisdom with us, that's not sufficient. And frankly, it's not very impactful. So Solomon says, never lose sight of these things. Continually keep your eyes on them. Live with your head up and your eyes on the target. He continues in 25, do not be afraid of sudden terror or the ruin of the wicked when it comes. For the Lord will be your confidence and he will keep your foot from being caught. The way of wisdom preserves a man from the kind of sudden terror that overtakes the wicked. And so if you've ever lived with a guilty conscience, you know that you're turning every corner because you're certain that they caught you. I know they caught me and they're coming to arrest me and to bring me to jail. The sudden terror that overtakes the wicked. But if your conscience is clean, then you can walk in freedom. I remember when my brother came home from college once. I was about 18 years old. He was about 20 or something. And he came home from college. My parents were out for the night. And so we had a bunch of friends over. And they're going to play cards. And what do men do? They get beer as they play their cards. And so beer caps, and let's flick them across the whole house. And one beer cap made its way underneath the radiator. I'm a follower of Christ right now. And so I'm not involved in all that. I'm staying out of it. And my mom, she's cleaning or whatever. She picks up this beer cap. And she says, what is this? ain't mine. And I was completely free, completely comfortable. My brother, I, I did one of those to my brother, you know, you might want to look that way over there or whatever. But I had nothing to worry about. I wasn't going to get caught because I didn't do anything wrong. There's a freedom which call, comes with walking in the ways of the Lord. There's a peace. So here he talks about this idea of the sudden terror that will overcome a person. Verse 26, he says, The Lord will be your confidence. He'll keep your foot from being caught. The Lord guards those who walk in his ways. He protects us as we seek to walk with him. And again, sometimes we see his protection. Other times, we'll get to heaven and we'll see his protection. Verse 27, another little section here. We're still talking about the blessings of walking in wisdom, the instructions for doing so. 
But notice we come into a series of negative instructions starting in verse 27, things that you shouldn't be doing. I'll read it to you. Do not withhold good from those to whom it's due when it's in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come again tomorrow. I'll give it to you when you have it with you to give it to him today. Do not plan evil against your neighbor who dwells trustingly beside you. Do not contend with a man for no reason when he has done you no harm. Do not envy a man of violence and do not choose any of his ways. For the devious person is an abomination to the Lord, but the upright are in his confidence. And so we have all of these do not statements, five different do not statements that are found in those five or six verses there. 27, do not sit back, in my own words, when you could actually be doing something good. 28, don't put your neighbor off until tomorrow when you can meet his or her need today. 29 and 30, don't plot evil against your neighbor or contend with others without reason. Verse 31, don't envy a man of violence or choose any of his ways. And the reason is, is because none of those ways are the, way, the ways of wisdom. And so I prayed earlier that perhaps we need to relearn some things. Maybe the Lord needs to do a work within us during this time to get us to think differently about some things. Each of those ways that are listed there, none of those ways are the ways of wisdom, God's wisdom. They're man's wisdom. Solomon says, follow God's wisdom. Man's wisdom says, well, how can I help now, considering there is a distinct possibility I'll need those resources later? That's man's wisdom. God says, do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it's in your power to do it. Man's wisdom says the only way that we can get ahead in this world is to take it by force and do whatever it takes to succeed. God's wisdom says, do not envy a man of violence and do not choose any of his ways. Do you see the point there? There's man's wisdom and there is God's wisdom. And God's wisdom is, his instructions are that every possessor of good things is bound by the command of God to use those good things, to distribute those good things to their neighbors who have none. And ultimately, let's just take this perspective, what's man's ultimate need? Salvation. And so if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're a believer, you've had your sins forgiven, and you've been washed and cleansed, and you can go to the end of your life knowing, yeah, I'm not too keen on how I might die, but I'm totally okay with dying because my sin has been covered by the work of Jesus Christ. Well, if you possess that knowledge, that's man's greatest need. And you should find yourself compelled to share that with others. And so, may I say this? Look at this verse from that perspective, 27. If the Holy Spirit burdens your heart to witness to someone, you should do it today. And I'm talking to myself here. Oh, you know, I'm going to talk to them someday in the future. If he burdens your heart today, tell people today. If he burdens your heart to reach out and care for someone today, then do that today. If the Holy Spirit moves you to check in on someone, I think this is really valuable for us as a church. And so the Lord just lays somebody on your heart for some particular reason. It's so easy to do this today. You can text a person. Tell them you've been praying for them. You can call a person and say, hey, you know, how you doing? You're on my heart today. Is there anything I can be praying for you? You can stop by and you can minister to them. If the Holy Spirit is prompting you to do that, then do that. Don't put off to tomorrow what you could do today. The way of wisdom is this. Now, Look how specific the command is. 27, do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it's in your power to do it. And do not say to your neighbor, go and come again tomorrow. Because what are you hoping? That they won't come back tomorrow. They'll go to somebody else tomorrow. When you have it within you. 
Sometimes people say, you know, what do you think, what do you think it is that God wants for me? What do you think he wants me to do? Well, here's a very good, clear instruction for you. Do good when it is in your power to do so. Now, does that mean you need to respond to every single solicitation for money? You get on the subway up near New York or something, you take the train up to New York, and people are just hitting you and hitting you and hitting you. Hey, man, can I have a dollar? Can I have a dollar? Can I have a dollar? Do you have to respond to every one of them as long as you have dollar bills in your pocket? Not necessarily. But what this does mean is you need to respond to the Holy Spirit's leading. And so you need to be in communion with him. And if the Holy Spirit guides you to respond to that person's need, you need to respond to that person's need. We talk more about that, but we've got to move. Wrapping, on, Sol- wrapping up, I should say, Solomon says in 33, the Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. Toward the scorners, he is scornful, but to the humble, he gives favor. The wise will inherit honor, but fools get disgrace. When the children of Israel were about to come into the promised land, they had been wandering through the wilderness for 40 years or so. Now they're about to enter into the promised land. And God lays before the children of Israel a choice. A choice to either receive his blessing or his curse. One verse or a couple of verses that summarize that are Deuteronomy 28. It says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I've set before you life and death, blessing and curse. He says, therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, holding fast to him. For he is your life and length of days that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give them. Choose life, he says. I put before you life, bless, life and death, blessing and a curse. He lays there. Here in the book of Proverbs, the choice is between God's blessing or his curse. It's between God's scorn or God's favor. The choice is to live a life that God will honor or one that will bring disgrace. But the choice is ours, how we respond and how we choose to live. Are we going to walk according to God's wisdom so that we might experience God's blessing? Verse 33, we read the Lord, how he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. The world may not realize, but the world that you live in your dorm room if you're a college student, your extended family, your, your immediate family, your community, the place that you work, all of those should experience God's blessing as a spillover of the way in which he is blessing you. The Apostle Paul, he makes reference to this idea in 1 Corinthians 7 when he says that the unbelieving husband, or you can interchangeably the unbelieving wife or the children in a family are blessed by the believer's presence in that family. So it says the unbelieving husband is made holy because of the wife. The unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. There's a spillover effect when you're walking with the Lord in a particular circumstance. Jesus would say it somewhat this way. He says, as disciples, we are to be salt and light in the world. The the blessing of a life lived in wisdom is so impactful that not only is the person walking in wisdom blessed, but those that they come in contact are going to be blessed as well. Because as it says, the Lord blesses the dwelling of the righteous. I, told, I mentioned to the group that was here last week, and maybe you weren't here, but we are in the process of signing a contract on a, a building for ourselves. And if you need more info, we can give it to you later there. But it was so interesting what the, real, the realtor wrote to me 
uh, sort of as she was wrapping it all up and saying, look, my services for you now are done. It's between you and the attorneys. But she says, I have no doubt that the owner is going to be incredibly blessed by your presence and the community around there as well. And I believe that as well. I believe the businesses around there are going to be blessed because Christians like to eat. And we're going to be in all of those food restaurants eating or, or whatever. But I think God's blessing will spill over. Notice also it says that the Lord shows his grace and his favor on the humble. That verse is quoted twice in the New Testament. James chapter 4, 1 Peter chapter 5. Speaking of humility and its opposite, a couple of chapters later, Solomon will talk about pride, the opposite of humility. And he'll say pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. And because the Lord knows that pride is destructive, the Lord has a way of breaking us of our pride. Have you come to discover that in your walk with Christ? That the Lord has a way of breaking you of your pride? He's not going to allow pride to remain in the life of his children because it is so destructive. I think the choice between us is we can be those who humble ourselves or those that need the Lord to humble them. And it's a lot less painful when we humble ourselves than having to go through the breaking process. But the Lord will do it one way or the other because pride is so destructive. The way of wisdom, as we see in this chapter, is the way of great blessing that comes from the one, now notice, that not only possesses wisdom, but that is wisdom. And that obviously is the Lord. And so with Solomon, I'll just say this. May the Lord prompt each of our hearts of the value of his wisdom, and may the Lord's wisdom be the only thing that truly attracts our gaze and becomes our pursuit. Amen? Would you agree with that? Let's pray. Father, we, we delight in you, and we acknowledge that uh, our ways are not as your ways, and often our ways will lead us astray. And Father, my prayer for myself, but my prayer for us, is, Lord, that indeed you would impress upon us the supreme value of wisdom and that whatever it takes, that we will get wisdom and that we will get understanding. Lord, you promise us that uh, if we seek, that we will find you ultimately, but certainly you in your ways. And so, Lord, continue to draw us to yourself. Give us a hunger to run after you. Lord, raise up others to come alongside of us that we might be encouraged by the brethren running with us. And Lord, bless us as a congregation. Thanks again for listening to the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. If you would like more information about the church, its ministries, its worship services, or its small groups, please visit ccmercer.com or download the church app to your phone. As we seek you in your ways, we pray. Amen. Let's-